Britain's top general says the new generation doesn't quite get the armed forces. Also, the reality of the budget's extra billion for the MOD. NATO war games, will Norway be saved? It's just having more strings to your bow rather than actually entering this type of theatre blind. And America tells Saudi Arabia to stop the Yemen war, but forgot to tell the UK. Hello, this is James Hurst in for Kate Boat. This week there have been rumblings in Whitehall on how young people see the armed forces. In the Times today, the Chief of Defence Staff himself, General Sir Nick Carter, is quoted as saying that he wonders if younger generations will still offer that same sense of support that our generation does to the armed forces. He was speaking at a forces charity event. Well, let's speak to our defence analyst Christopher Lee on this. Christopher, is the CDS actually saying there, do you think that the younger generation are less likely to support the armed forces? No, but that's the way it can come over. It's not a question of saying they're less likely to support the armed forces, therefore they're against the armed forces. That the armed forces don't have that prominence, really. And so when you put it in a context especially at the moment of collecting for Poppy Day, um, they're la- less likely to sort of have it right in their sights, must do it, you know, must be there on Sunday for the, for the, for the church parade at 11, which doesn't happen anymore. Uh, you hear, though, I mean, anecdotally, a week ago, we were, we were talking to, um, at the Poppy Day launch, uh, one of the older poppy sellers who was saying they were surprised at the number of young people coming up to them and that they were giving big amounts of money. So is this actually a, simply a perception or is it a warning of what could happen? I think it's a perception. I mean, it, 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 the general uh, has, has got has got precedence uh, or previous on this. Uh, last year, he was saying that he thought that the so-called millennials, and this is a generation of between about the age of eighteen and thirty-four, which is the so-called son, son, uh, junior gen, uh, generation. He was saying that they're told, sort of people now want to know what's in it for them. They have a prioritising instinct of gratification. So they'll choose a career rather than considering what they could do and offer to society. Now, it's interesting that civilians quite often fail to see how much the military do think about country. Okay. Do you think of that? And therefore, but, it's the other way around yes, as well. but that can be taken as CDS having a pop at millennials. Alternatively, it can be seen as CDS pointing out to the armed forces at a time when recruitment is, is, is quite difficult. They need to understand the mindset of the civilian world, not even necessarily actually a younger generation. I think you're absolutely right. It, it, it's a question. I mean, he's not saying, you know, God help us from all these young people. It's not, it's not the sort of thing that uh, was my generation did. It, it, what he is saying here is beware. We have got a huge problem, not just in recruitment, which is this is not just about, but in recruitment where, you know, in tens of thousands short, but you've got to listen to this because it's one of the reasons that it's not going to be easy to, to rectify that. Well, of course, defence is trying to grapple all sorts of problems. It was handed perhaps a temporary solution to at least some in the budget on Monday. The Chancellor himself, former Defence Secretary, gave the Ministry of Defence an extra billion pounds. That is what he said. It seems then to have been a triumph for those who have campaigned for retired Chiefs of Staff who've been lobbying for more money. 
or is it a triumph? Uh, with us from Westminster, Dr Julian Lewis, who chairs the House of Commons Defence Select Committee. Uh, Julian Lewis, what is this £1 billion going to deliver for the armed forces? Well, it's going to deliver relief from having further cuts, which would have had to have taken place if there hadn't been a modest uplift of this sort. So we're still really not tackling the fundamental problem, which is, as you've heard me, James, uh, say many, many times before, that defence has slipped too far down the scale of our national priorities. But it will tide us over. I'm describing it really as a sort of sticking plaster on a gaping wound. It will tide us over until we see what the modernising defence programme comes up with, which is the defence strand of that national security review that uh, previously had defence lumped in with everything else but now fortunately does not. Okay, so you describe it as a sticking plaster. Mm -hmm. What would defence have lost, do you believe, if if it hadn't been given this sticking plaster, this billion pounds? What's it going to protect? Well, it depends on it depends on uh, uh, whether you believe what seemed to be some very well-informed leaks particularly to the Times newspaper a few months ago, which uh, showed, for example, uh, choices between major cuts to the Royal Marines, the loss of uh, the amphibious assault ships. Now, in fact, Gavin Williamson had seized on the issue of the amphibious assault ships and announced at the his own party conference a few weeks ago that they were not going to be lost come what may. But it was basically more and more across the board losses, which um, uh, any one of which would have been unacceptable. I think they were describing them the choice between horrible equally horrible and even more horrible or words to that effect um, so uh, you know at least we're able to to tread water until we know how this fight between the Secretary of State for Defence and the Chancellor of the Exchequer finally pans out and uh, it's ongoing really simple yes no question is this actually mm -hmm. new money uh, as far as I can see it is uh, it okay. is new money. So, so, mm. so, so the Chancellor has come up with more money. This is a mm. man who, as Defence Secretary five years ago, mm. was telling us he had balanced the budget and closed mm. the multi-billion pound black hole. Mm. What has gone wrong that he needs to be closing another black hole? Well, I don't think he'd ever managed to do what he said he'd done, frankly. I think it was a preposterous statement at the time. Um, Defence has been hugely underfunded. We are barely spending uh, the 2% NATO minimum. Uh, even with even with this extra billion pounds, um, the most reliable figure I can get to is that we're spending 2.11% of GDP. Now, I remember the years when I was in opposition alongside the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and we were criticising the Blair Labour government for spending only 2.5% of GDP, and the Defence committee, which is a cross-party committee, as you know, James, is saying that we ought to have as our target the figure of 3% of GDP, which is what we used to spend as late as the mid-1990s. OK, if, if we move aside from those targets, which are potentially a separate debate, mm. we go back to the report that was written getting on for 10 years ago about what it described as the conspiracy of optimism. 
in MOD budgeting. Is it the mm. case here? Because particularly it is the nuclear submarines that have tipped this over. Is there, sim- is there, is there huge inefficiency there? Are things mm. running away? Or are people just setting their expectations too high? Well, I, I don't accept that it is the nuclear submarines that have tipped it over. In fact, the, well, it's about two there's thirds a separate... of this money. <clears throat> Well, there's about... No, it isn't. No, I think you're getting two lots uh, of money mixed up here, James, if I if I may. Um, in March, it was announced that there would be uh, uh, 800 million uh, extra for defence. And of that, three quarters of that, 600 million, that was from the contingency uh, money towards the nuclear submarine project. And the other 200 million was a rollover from a previous financial year. This is not, as far as I know, uh, specifically allocated to the nuclear project. This billion will have um, 200 million uh, in the current financial year and the remaining 800 million uh, in the year um, 2019 to 20. And so it it is new money and uh, I don't accept the fact that it's the nuclear project that's the root of the trouble. Finally, can I just ask you... um the news that that came out just a few hours ago, uh, another concern that the Defence Committee has looked at a number of times, Mm defence industrial capacity, defence industrial skills. We now learn that Babcock are closing their Appledore shipyard. What what do you make of that as a first reaction? Well, that is uh, a very worrying development. I, only yesterday, funnily enough, I'd been approached by one of the Labour Party's defence spokesmen, because we do work on a very much on a cross-party basis, as is only right, and um, he had uh, told me a little bit about uh, concerns here and um, and we'd arranged that uh, people from uh, Appledore should come in and, and have a chat with, with me and other Defence Committee members. Um, so this has been overtaken by events. Um, all I can say is I haven't had a chance to speak to Babcock. I've seen the various press announcements that have been made. Um, big companies like Babcock and BAE Systems have to remember that they, they do enjoy a near monopoly position and therefore it does behove them to do everything they can to preserve the defence industrial base. No doubt they'll have very clear explanations as to why they're doing what they're doing and how they're proposing to save all the jobs that they can, and which is hopefully all 199, I believe, I saw the figure, um, by moving them to Devonport. But nevertheless, any contraction of a valuable part of the defence industrial base is to be regretted. Julian Lewis, thanks for sharing your many thoughts today. Julian Lewis, the Chairman of the Commons Defence Committee. Still to come, war games in the snow and in the sand. And what is modern deterrence? NATO has rejected Russian criticism of its largest exercise since the end of the Cold War. Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg said exercise Trident Juncture, spanning from Iceland to the Baltic, is not designed to be a threat. It is not directed against anybody and it's purely defensive. We train in peacetime uh, to make sure our forces can work together in crisis and conflict. We also train to test and certify the NATO response force for 2019. And as Rob Olver now reports, it is being described as a very realistic stress test for the Alliance's warfighting capabilities. Trident Juncture is NATO's biggest exercise in years. 10,000 vehicles and 50,000 personnel are on the ground in Norway. 
They're supported by more than 60 large naval vessels and 120 aircraft. All 29 NATO countries are involved, so too are non-aligned Sweden and Finland. The scale is reminiscent of Cold War manoeuvres. Frigid certainly describes relations with Russia these days. But NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg says it's no return to the past. We are not in a Cold War situation, but we are uh, exercising collective defence uh, because that's the core uh, task for NATO, is to show that we have the resolve, that we have the capabilities, that we have the will to defend all allies. And again, this is about preventing a conflict because as long as all potential adversaries know that an attack on one ally will trigger the response from the whole alliance, then there will be no attack. Still, Russia manages to jangle nerves. Moscow has threatened missile tests off the Norwegian coast, but NATO says Trident Juncture is far from Russian territory. Planes are being kept at least 500 kilometres away, twice that distance for troops, who include 1,600 British soldiers. Most took a week to reach Norway, but that's because they drove all the way. Colonel Nick Siegston is the UK contingent commander. It's just vital that we can show that certainly within Europe and, and within NATO's borders we can uh, deploy a significant force um, over a significant distance of two and a half thousand kilometres and be ready to fight at the end of it. Soldiers from the Royal Irish and Duke of Lancaster regiments have been preparing for battle. From their base two hours north of Oslo, their destination is even further north into the snow and ice. Lieutenant Matt Tilly has been training them. The conditions aren't as severe as, it, say, up in the Arctic Circle, but if we had to deploy this capability, we have the opportunity to train and make sure that we understand how that works. And it's just, it's just ha having more strings to your bow rather than actually entering this type of theatre blind. Norway's harsh winter climate will still be a huge test for British soldiers. There's been some agonising initial survival training. It's meant troops standing for minutes submerged to their necks in near-freezing lakes. A special simulated ice track has also taught army drivers how to stay safe on the roads, all part of what NATO describes as a unique military training opportunity. Royal Marines have long known how to fight in the frozen north. Now it's the British Army's turn. Rob Olver reporting on Exercise Trident Juncture. Christopher Lee, what do you make of, of, of this? Is it, is it going to ramp up tensions? Uh, no, it's not going to ramp up tensions. I mean, this, is thing, this thing has been going, or something like it's been going now since 1970s, really. Um, and the Russians uh, did some naval firing offshore firing as well. In the same area, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. This, this week, and that's fine, they've all done that. But the Russian team has been brought into NATO and they were thoroughly briefed over four days of exactly what was going to happen day by day by day by day. Um, they've got observers as well. So it 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 is... What's interesting is where they've got so far with the British, uh, the, uh, with the British side of it. You know, it took them three weeks, three weeks to get virtually a sort of cut-down brigade in, into, into Norway. And, you know, you and I can do it on a ferry overnight or whatever, three weeks. That is the sort of size we're talking about. Imagine 29 countries all trying to get their troops, some of them with no transport of their own. They've never done it before. They've got no procedures before. They didn't even know who's in command, all trying to get into a position where they could defend Norway. That is why it takes a month to do this, and we're about to go into the next 10-day period. Whenever you talk to NATO about this, the word you always hear is deterrence. There is a new phrase uh, that we are going to be hearing a lot more about in the future. 
modern deterrence. The Royal United Services Institute will next week launch its modern deterrence programme at a conference. Uh, so what is it? Well, Elizabeth Braw has been appointed the Associate Fellow of Modern Defence at RUCI. Elizabeth Braw, thank you for joining us. Uh, I suppose in essence, deterrence means you are threatening the other side with something that threatens them so that they will not attack you. If they do attack, deterrence has failed. What's the difference between this traditional view and modern deterrence. So thank you for having me. The, the traditional view, which is also what uh, Jens Stoltenberg described there in, in your previous segment, is that if you attack uh, us or indeed one of the uh, other NATO member states, then we will punish you. So that's deterrence by punishment. But if we look at hybrid warfare, which is this blend of all kinds of aggression that you can subject an adversary to, only part of it is military. And uh, deterrence by punishment really only works if, if the aggression is of a military nature, because then you, you, you punish uh, the aggressor. But um, uh, hybrid warfare can be hacks uh, of the electricity grid, it can be election um, interference, it can be disinformation campaigns, and traditional deterrence, which is the by punishment with uh, armed forces attacking you back clearly doesn't work against that. So we need what what I would call a seamless defence or total defence or what the UK government uh, calls modern deterrence, okay, and so, that's what this programme is about. So, but what what prompts this new f phrase? Because I, I, I I'm trying now to understand the the difference between what you're describing as modern deterrence and and simply having defences. Well, it's, it's part of, of the same package. So if you have good defences, that includes uh, in, in our modern and in a modern society like the UK or indeed any other Western country, it includes the armed forces, but also societal resilience so that if an adversary attacks us, uh, we as ordinary citizens know what to do. For example, if there is a power uh, a hack on, on the power grid, which, by the way, is something that uh, Russia or another other adversary could could easily do then we as as, as as ordinary citizens should know how to fend for ourselves for 48 or 72 hours so that the armed forces don't have to look after uh, each and all of us uh, in addition to doing what they are supposed to do which is, which is combat and and so it's really about all of society or society in its different segments so government all of government or the whole of government uh, the private sector and and civic society coming together to form this, uh, to create this resilience that can then back up the armed forces when they do what they need to do and focus on, which is uh, combat and deterrence by punishment. So let's take an example. Cyber, uh, very much seen as the sort of the, the new battlefield. What would its deterrence factor or factors be? So if you think about a, a cyber attack on, on uh, critical national infrastructure, let's say um, the transportation network or the power grid. So if, if such an attack were successful, uh, how would we, uh, with just the, the traditional deterrence capabilities, so strike back with armed forces, how, how would that, that wouldn't really be an effective tool, uh, pr uh, first of all, because it's it's hard to identify who the attacker is, and then do you attack uh, um, um, 
somebody who has uh, hacked your power grid, you attack them, you send the British army against them. It's it's sort of a mismatch. So what needs to happen is that uh, in addition to having uh, our military capabilities, uh, we need to know what to do in case of such an emergency um, so that we as citizens don't panic. We know what to do, how to survive for, for several days without power. And also uh, in preparation or sort of as, as a preventive measure, preparedness measure, uh, for um, the private sector to work in close cooperation with the government, uh, with crisis management exercises, with information sharing between uh, companies and between uh, on, on on one hand and between the private sector and government on the other hand, so that we we uh, form this seamless defence uh, and uh, where really I mean it's it's in everybody's interest that no success no attack ever be successful, but. Um, and that should be the first step. And but then, as I said, the second step is is for us ordinary citizens and companies and government, of course, to know what to do in case of a, a successful attack or other crisis. Well, Elizabeth Braw, thank you very much for your thoughts. Elizabeth Braw is associate fellow of Modern Deterrence at the Royal United Services Institute. Christopher, twenty seconds. Your thoughts? This is nonsense. Because, um, but we already have lots of deterrence through politics and financial sanctions. Deterrence is not what to threaten somebody that if you do that, we will hurt you, attack you. Deterrence is to be so powerful that it frightens the other people not to do it, and that is, and it only exists in one form, and that is, and that is nuclear deterrence, and that's where you have to start with the so-called modernizing deterrence, which is some which was the Americans started two years ago, and RUSI doesn't seem to have caught up. Let us go to Amman next. Five and a half thousand members of the British Armed Forces are currently on a major exercise there. Exercise Safe Syria, a joint exercise with Amani troops. More than 10 years since the last time British troops exercised in the Gulf state for Safe Syria too. After that, the Ministry of Defence was criticised by the National Audit Office for equipment failures and shortages. Forces Radio's Chris Pearson has been speaking to Commodore Andy Kite about the lessons learned since then. Well, I think so far, from my perspective, and I think if you were to talk to the National Component Commander General Skeets, it's gone very, very well. Um, the preparation for this exercise has been intense. We have left no stone turned, so to speak. We'd looked very carefully at the lessons from Safe Syria 2 uh, to, to learn, right, how can we uh, ensure we don't make the same mistakes and ensure that we address those issues. And I think right across the piece, from a logistics perspective, which is clearly my, my specialist area as the commander of logistics for this exercise um, we've had our challenges but you can't do expeditionary logistics and expeditionary warfare which is what this is all about at strategic distance to the Middle East and in an area that has the type of conditions that we're operating in uh, frequently we were above 40 degrees centigrade with 60-70% uh, humidity that is a demanding set of circumstances so you, you, you inevitably in, those, in that environment get challenges. But I think every one of those challenges we've overcome. Um, we have proven that we can deploy a force to this part of the world. We have proven that we can activate a theater. We have proven that we can come into a country at the invitation of the Omanis for this exercise and set ourselves up to be able to operate. And yes, there's been challenges in sustainment, but then they have been uh, almost the inevitability, the inevitable uh, challenges that we would expect about sustaining a force in a country like, uh, or an area like, like this. Has it just been a case of applying the lessons learned from operations in Iraq and Afghan, or has there been an effort to build on that, if you like, and uh, deal with some of the problems that have emerged and that, that are clearer in the heads of the commanders now for the British component? 
Well, I think what is important about Safe Syria 3 is, and this is, and this is a general point about, about where the UK military now positions itself. So Iraq and Afghanistan was 13, 14 years worth of campaigning. We're out of that now, and what the UK is trying to, to establish itself as, and the UK military is, is, is establishing itself as, is an expeditionary force. And that requires a very different mindset to what we had in Afghanistan and Iraq. What we're now about is the ability to move quickly. We're about the ability to take a force into a, an area, a region, a country, and set itself up, to go into, a, in, into, into that country and establish the infrastructure establish the contracts, establish the, establish the lines of communication, establish the medical laydown. And that's what we've been doing on this exercise. And we've learned huge, huge lessons. We've done it. Um, we, we, we've, we've had some real success. Um, I, would, I would say that we have uh, got to the point now where we know where we could do it even better in future. Um, but that is precisely what this exercise is all about. Looking at, again, the differences between Safe Syria 2 and Safe Syria 3, right about a fifth of the uh, troop numbers uh, here on Safe Syria 3, less equipment involved. Uh, is there any concern that that speaks to a wider problem with troop numbers within the MOD? Well, I think what's important to note from, 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 from Safe Syria 3 is this is an invitation from the Omanis to come and take part in their exercise. They're operating at something like 65,000 troops, soldiers, sailors and airmen. Um, what this represents for us is a complex joint force so we have got a bit of everything we have got a very very capable uh, very balanced force uh, which is precisely the sort of scale we would imagine if we were if we were operating alongside the Omanis in this type of scenario bearing in mind it's their exercise that we've been invited and I think what we've demonstrated is that you can you can move a force of this size based around an armoured battle group based around an amphibious task group based around fast jets rotary wing uh, we can move it fast we can get it into an area like this and we can sustain it and operate it alongside one of our closest partners and regional allies. And finally, you talk about the, uh, the regional uh, importance here. It's a growing, strategically, it's a growing, an area of growing importance. Uh, and what does this operation, would you say, mean for the UK's defence relationships in the region? Well, I think the first thing to say is Oman is our longest standing partner. Um, we've had close relationships with the, with, with the Omanis for, for, for many, many years, hence the reason why this is Safe Syria 3. Um, but this, this region matters to the UK. The Prime Minister, a couple of years ago, um, publicly stated Gulf security is our security. So this exercise is about, say, uh, is about a statement that the UK is willing and prepared to project a force to this part of the world to support one of our closest regional partners and allies. And I think that's the important regional context for this. Commodore Andy Kites talking to Forces Radio's Chris Pearson. Uh, Christopher, I just want to pick up on uh, a phrase that we, we heard in there from Commodore Kite, the government saying that uh, Gulf security is our security. Go next door. Uh, this week, the government said it wouldn't be telling Saudi Arabia to stop attacking Yemen. The following day, the Americans told Saudi Arabia to stop the war and announced peace talks in Sweden. What is going on? Uh, very simply, they don't rate the, the British uh, interest in this. They didn't bother to tell the British. We actually we actually had uh, Alistair Burt, the, the Foreign Office Minister, saying in the House of Commons, no, 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 we're not going to tell the, the, uh, the, the Yemen people to do anything like this, or, or the Saudis, for, rather, uh, to do this. We are out of it. Irony here, um, just listening to Commodore Andy Kite talking in Oman, um, the last war that we fought on behalf of Oman was against Yemen. 
uh, it's been going on for years. In, in 20 seconds, do you think there's any hope of wrapping it up? Uh, yeah, you can wrap it up if you actually put enough pressure. But when you look at the pressure we're talking about, is the Americans having having, having to come to terms with the fact there's so much uh, there's there's oil, there's there's political influence in the region, um, there is also future contracts, and there is a tremendous amount because we want to tie up the Iran, and which is the Saudis are doing. Uh, there's a lot of discussion to be a lot of discussions that have to go on, and what you can get is a truce. And a truce is nothing more than you're not doing it for the moment. Uh, of course, it's remembrance season. Poignant as the centenary of the armistice, you've often said all today's conflicts can be traced back to that time. I think certainly think all modern con- um, conflicts that we get involved in, um, and we didn't get involved in Vietnam, if anybody queries, it, queries that one, uh, you start there. You start there because of the technology, tanks becoming involved, aircraft, bombing of civilians, etc., and the failure of big organisations to work, and that includes the United Nations. We will have more on that with you on next week's programme. That is, though, all we have time for this week on SITREP. Don't forget, of course, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, for example. We are at BFBS SITREP. Uh, while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP in all the usual podcast places, wherever you find them. I'm James Hurst. Uh, Kate Chabot should be back next week. But until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. See you soon. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Historic Appledore Shipyard.